Well, today we're continuing in our journey through the book of Amos. We're going to be in chapter 6, uh, starting at the first uh, couple verses there. Just a reminder, we're not going through every single verse in Amos, uh, just because some of it uh, is very specifically focused on certain issues that were going on in his time there. Uh, and frankly, it's Maybe I'm being lazy, but it's hard to, to preach on some of that stuff. But uh, there's a, so much in Amos which directly can translate right into our own lives. And today is one of those. Even though he's speaking to a very specific group of people, there's some overall lessons in it which transfer over to our lives. But before getting into it, without raising your hands, I'm not asking anyone to raise their hands, I just want to ask you a couple questions. And the first question I want to ask you is this one. Are you rich? And then the second question I want to ask you is, when I asked you, are you rich, what was the first thing you thought of? Did you think about money first? Financial? Riches? I think it would be kind of natural to do so, uh, because that's kind of how we most often will associate the word rich. And that's actually kind of what we're looking at today. This question, are you rich? Now, over my lifetime... I'm going to share a little bit with you about my life. I've had a lot of chances to think about this question. And it started when I was quite young. Because when I was not quite seven years old, my family moved in 1975. My family moved from the United States, where my dad was working for the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, a very middle class, but upper comfortably middle class life, to West Africa, to Ghana. And it was during my time as a child in Ghana, I slowly became aware of the fact that I was living a very privileged lifestyle, surrounded by people who, in general, were uh, making a, a much, lived in a much poorer lifestyle. Now, I know that Ghana has come a long way since 1975, so I don't want to uh, have this be an insult to anyone who's from Ghana. I loved Ghana. It's still, Africa is still in my heart today because of my childhood in Ghana. But it was, it was a rough time in the late 70s. There's a lot of military takeovers. There's a lot of scarcity of food. And uh, there's scarcity of electricity. Things like that. And yet I realized that I was living rich. When I was about nine or so years old, I was like, okay, something's different here. Because I used to look at the kids in the villages and they had their skinny little legs, but they all had these pot bellies. And when I was young, I thought, why are they all fat? Why are they all running around with these pot bellies? And I later realized that that was actually the result of se severe malnutrition. The disease is called kwashiorkor. And when, they, when there's a deep, deep malnutrition, it manifests itself because the abdominal muscles are so weakened by malnutrition that they're, basically their guts are poking out. And so it's, a, it's actually a sign of deep hunger. Then I moved back to the U.S. and my dad was a professor at Washington State University. He was, uh, you know, again, a comfortably upper middle class life. I had my own room as an American, decent sized house. I had a car available when I was 16. You know, the whole, uh, you know, was able to get into university with my marginal high school grades. Uh, the whole kind of living the, uh, the American dream, you know, the American journey towards the American dream. And then Cindy and I, my wife and I, we went back to Africa. We went to Southern Africa this time into Lesotho. And in Lesotho, we lived more at the level of, of the local people around us, but still, uh, there were the local people that had our qualifications as teachers. So it was still a, a fairly, 
you know, upper lifestyle. And even though we lived more on the level of folks, and sometimes we had the scarcities and all that, we always knew that for us, this wasn't going to last. That for Cindy and I, this was going to be a two-year assignment, and then we were going back to the land of good and plenty. So even though there was like the transportation issues, and there was sometimes scarcity issues, we always had in our mind that, well, for us, this isn't going to last. We're going to go back. And in fact, the volunteers, we used to talk about it amongst ourselves, that it was like a two-year-long camping trip. It was interesting. It was uncomfortable at times, but we were going to go home at some point. And so all these things kind of worked into sort of developing my ideas, you know, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be poor? Then, you know, I went into the pastorate, which is a choice you make with some financial awareness. You know, for example, when you're going into the pastorate, you're not going to maximize your financial potential, at least not, not in the way that I wanted to approach ministry. And you know that going in, but still, at the, when, I, when we came from Germany, we had a four-bedroom house. We had like four different vehicles. Uh, had a big yard. I mean, there's nothing that you could say about us that was in any way poor. In fact, compared to the rest of the world, again, quite rich. So what does this mean? Well, I think I, I'm going to make a fairly bold statement uh, that here. And that the fact is that most of us in the room here, not everybody, but most of the people in the room here today and in IBCD would qualify as rich by the world standards. When you look at the overall population of the world and how people live, most people here are living rich, and many of you are well off even by German standards, which is fairly substantial. And now I know some of you right now are just inside going, oh man, here comes the tithing sermon. This is not about tithing. Uh, in fact, so you can relax if you're worried about that this is going to be about tithing, because this is not going to be about tithing. But I know that for many of you also, there's also this voice going on in your, in your head that is like, well, we're not really rich. We're not rich, at least not compared to some people rich. This little kind of justifying voice in our heads. And at IBCD, we have an additional kind of interesting wrinkle into it is that some of you have come to a place in your life where you could say, you look around the world's average and go, I am in the upper level of wealth. And some of you have come a long way. Some of you really did come from village life to where you're at today. My journey wasn't all that long. You know, I came out of you know, upper middle class, and I pretty much stayed in either middle or upper middle class. I didn't have to journey very far. Some of you can say that. Some of you know, oh, this was a long journey. And good for you. God bless you in that. But the question then we all have to deal with is, how do we live as relatively well-off? Relatively wealthy Christians in a world that's full of need. How do we do this? Without feeling guilty, without feeling like somehow, you know, uh, I have to give everything away in order to be a true disciple. How do I live this life? Because I believe God blesses us with certain things. So how do we live this out? What do we do with this? And how do we make sure we don't allow the relative wealth in our lives to get us off track from what the things that God wants us to do? And so this is where the book of Amos focuses at on this particular chapter. Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And as, if you've been with us for a while, you know that one of the major themes in Amos's book is the disparity between the rich and the poor. And how he was preaching against 
the, the, the attitudes, and he's specifically in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's preaching against attitudes which were, leading, which were issues of abuse of economics and an abuse of justice. And these two went hand in hand. And Amos is very often pointing this out. An abuse of the economic levels and an abuse of justice. And in chapter 6, he uses, you know, Amos is a very vivid word painter. And he uses these words to paint a picture of a group of people who are living lives that are completely unaware and completely numb to the issues going on around them. Issues of poverty, issues of injustice, issues of uh, a lack of integrity before God. They're, they're completely numb to it, and they've become numb to it by their comforts and by their sense of entitlement. And so let's read this. This is Amos chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalneth and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath. And then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than you in your two kingdoms? Are they better off than your two kingdoms? He's speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie in beds of you lie in beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Now, as I was studying this passage here, something fairly rare happened inside me. Usually when I read the scripture, it's pretty clear where all that where I think that one of the geniuses of scripture is that it can apply to every people all the time and every level, economic level, education level, social level. But in this passage, the first time I read through it, my first thought was that this needs to be read out loud to the level of people that he is aiming this at. Because there are people in many of our countries, mine included, who seem to live in a completely different world than the one which we occupy. They seem to live in a world where good means evil and evil means good. Up is down, down is up. Lies are truth. The truth is a lie. They will do and they will say anything to maintain the power that they have so that they can enrich themselves personally at the expense of others. Justice, justice is a joke. It seems to be different for them. The crimes that they commit, if you or I had committed them, we would have been locked up in a dark hole a long time ago. And yet they remain free and they are able to benefit. Opportunities, even just the opportunity to get a better education can be bought with money and with influence instead of with merit. And this is the group that make the rules of society and they, are, they make sure that those rules benefit themselves. And then they tell the people, well, we're really all doing this for your own good. 
And I'm pretty sure this is who Amos is talking about here. Let's just break this down. It says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. The word that's translated as complacent in the Hebrew means, Woe to you who are at ease in the security of your situation. You're at ease at the security of your situation. There's a little bit of arrogance in the word. It comes from the sense of having arrived and being on top of the heap and believing you deserve to be there. Complacent is a good translation. Then he says, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. In the northern kingdom of Israel, Mount Samaria is where the capital city was. It was Samaria. Later on in the time of Jesus, this region is no longer called the kingdom of Israel. It's called Samaria. This is why Jesus talks, he, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, for example. So this is where the capital city was built. And he's saying that they are feeling very secure in the strength of their kingdom. Economically, militarily, culturally. And then he says, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Here Amos makes the audience of this pretty clear. To you who are leaders in the leading nation. You are leaders in the leading nation. The ones to whom the people come in order to be ruled. And then Amos goes on to ask some rhetorical questions. To make clear that there are no other countries around them that are better off than they are. When he says, go to Kana and look at it. And go there to the great Hamath. And go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? And the answer to that, the rhetorical question is, no, they're not better off. The kingdom of northern kingdom of Israel at this time and the southern kingdom of Judah were far better off. Is their land larger than yours? No. Philistines actually is, it was a tiny little piece. It wasn't very big at all. It's where modern day Gaza is. It's not a big piece of land. And then the word of warning comes to these people who are living this self-indulgent, self-satisfied, self-deluded lifestyle. He says, you put off the evil day and bring near the reign of terror. They put it off by not being willing to really look at what their situation is. They put it off by saying, hey, everything's fine. We're doing well in every measurable metric that you can look at. Economics, military, influence. We're doing great. God must be with us. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And because they're unwilling to look at their spiritual condition, he says, you're putting this off and there's going to come a reign of terror. You lie in beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away in your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. It's not to say that playing a musical instrument is evil. He's talking about here just, you know, they didn't have TV. They didn't have internet. They're just kind of idling away in their entertainment is what he's getting at. You drink wine by the bowlful. It's not saying it's bad to have a glass of wine, but you're drinking it by the bowlful. And use the finest lotions. Again, it's not against lotions in general, but it's this idea of just kind of indulgence and comfort. And this is the issue, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. It's interesting that Amos never refers to the kingdom of Israel or Judah as, as Israel or Jacob. He always refers to it as Joseph. And I'm not quite sure why. Uh, to be honest with you, there's all kinds of opinions about it, but he never really explains. Why don't you say, you know, the descendants of the ruin of Jacob or the ruin of Israel? And he always goes back to Joseph. So his issue is like, the people are, are spiritually ruined. And you don't really care. Because remember, the king, the king of, of Israel, he had actually recast two golden calves. Let's not forget how deep this guy had gone down the rabbit hole of wrong 
because you know, he didn't want people to go to Jerusalem to worship, he, he rebuilt these two golden calves and said, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt, which is just ironic and crazy as the people went along with it, but they did. And so he warns them, therefore, you'll be the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. The kingdom of Israel was conquered by the kingdom of Assyria about 70, 50 to 70 years after Amos uttered these words. Because God is a patient God. People read the Old Testament and go, oh, he's being mean here. God is extremely patient. And then 150 years after that, Judah is conquered by Babylon. And if you read Jeremiah, he actually talks about this, like the first group that went were the upper class, like Daniel, that whole story, Daniel and his friends, they go into exile. And then and Jeremiah sees it as the group of the basket of good figs. And then there's the basket of rotten figs. There's the second exile and the third exile. But they are crushed and wiped off the map. And the kingdom of Israel and Judah as kingdoms never come back into existence. And in 19, I think it's 48, you had the reemergence of the nation of Israel, which just blows people's minds, and it should, because no nation on earth has ever disappeared from the map for 2,000 years and then comes back on the map. So what can we take from this? Well, I've already said, I don't think there's anyone in the room here that there could be a direct one-to-one -one comparison. Maybe there's, there is, but I'm not aware of it. But I do think, as believers that there are some things we can hear in this passage. One is the warning of complacency. And remember, complacent is that you are, you've put trust in your, in your security and that it can't be touched. And I think one of the places that complacency comes from Christians who are relatively well off, and I include myself in this, is that it's easy for us to mouth our faith in Christ, but not really have to place our trust in him. Because we can say, well, other things I can, I can control. I can control my happiness. I can control my security. I can control these things, usually through our finances. That's why I tell people the closest we come to worshiping an idol is our finances. Because in the old days, people would worship a statue, hoping that that would bring them health and wealth and prosperity and, and security and food for the next year and all that stuff. And that's what we think money's going to do for us. It'll allow us to have health because we can afford our health care we can buy food it'll secure our retirement it's very easy for money to become that idol and we can think we can control it and i think it's fine and i think it's even biblical to save for your future i think it's totally biblical to receive and to give an inheritance inheritance is a big deal in the scripture it's it's not just a physical thing but it also represents things spiritually don't have a problem with God allowing wealth into the Christian's life. I think it's there for a reason. But we have to be really careful because it's easy for us to go from being thankful and being smart with what God has given us to being obsessed by it and start to grow in that place of greed. Because, for example, when building our wealth becomes our idol, then we lose the spirit of generosity, which is of the Lord. When power and influence becomes our idol, then we, use, we lose humility. When the ends justify the means of reaching our personal goals, then we will sacrifice anything, including the conditions of how people live and die, in order to make the stuff that we want. And I'm not, I'm not a big social justice warrior type, but I do think that as Christians, 
People who recognize that God is aware of who we are, that he cares about our condition, that he is supremely just, and yet within that uncompromising justice, there's a strong streak of sacrifice and humility and grace in there. That as Christians, we need to be the same. We should also strive to be aware of what's going on around us. What is going on around us? And I love being here in Germany. I love IBCD. But I have to admit, for me, sometimes this becomes a bubble that I find very difficult to really look outside of and see what's going on in the world around me. It's easy for us to be insulated in our little bubbles, be it our bubble of our, our career or the bubble of our, you know, our, who we hang out with. It's easy to kind of be in this insulated bubble. And looking beyond that can be very hard. And I think as Christians, we need to be aware of what's going on. We need to be caring. There's this world full of people that are created in the image of God. And very few of them understand who that God is. We need to be willing to be just. You know, we, not many of us are in law enforcement. The church I pastored in Oregon had tons of police officers. And so it was kind of interesting to talk about justice with them. But we need to be willing to be just in the, in the places where we can have influence. But within that justice, just like in Christ, there needs to be a strong streak of being sacrificial and generous and graceful. You know, the, the Christians in Antioch, which is, you know, where these uh, folks are going to help out, that was the place they were first called Christians, was in Antioch. And it was used as a derogatory thing. It was used as a put-down. Like all these people run around think they're little Christ. That's what it means, little Christ. And the Christians took up that. They said, yeah, we'll take that. We'll be called Christians. And I think that within Micah 6.8, you know, I've told you before, this is kind of a verse I hover around when I don't really feel like there's a specific mission that I'm supposed to be on. You know, this is sort of my, this is my uh, hovering zone. I think this is an important verse. It's profound in its simplicity. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. And as a Christian, of course, I read this through the lens of the New Testament. I don't just read this without Christ. I read this within the context of Christ. That within acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with my God, I'm not earning my salvation. My salvation has been bought by the blood of Christ. But this is how I'm to function within that place of grace and forgiveness. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. So I think it's important for us to not become complacent. And it's super easy to become complacent. It's easy for us to think about all the things we can control. And it's fine to, you know, have input on these things. It's not saying you should just throw your hands up and not really care about anything. But be careful to not let those things that you think you control become your idols. And to let those things which you think you can control overcome or, or be, take more of a bigger place in your life than the characteristics of Christ. And then the second thing, which I think is very applicable to all of us from these passages is to not let our comforts distract us from our calling as believers. You know, in this passage, Amos lists various ways which people who are to be the leaders of the nation are allowing their comforts to distract them. He says, you, you're lying around in these couches with ivory inlay. Uh, you're, you're eating the best of foods. You're just focused on your entertainments. 
In other words, they're distracted by the beautiful things that their wealth can buy. The sensual pleasures of food, the lotions that wealth buys. They're distracted by the entertainments that they can lose themselves into. And it's important to understand that Amos isn't saying that these people should not be leaders. He never calls for their expulsion as leaders. He says, you are being distracted from the thing that you are meant to do because of these comforts. You are meant to be in a certain role. The scripture tells us in Romans that God places people into positions of power, which is sometimes a bit of a mind blower when you think about the people that are in power sometimes. But God places them there. And with that responsibility comes a lot more responsibility. You need to be responsible with the place that God puts you. And he's saying to these people, Amos is saying, you've lost that. You've allowed yourselves to just be overwhelmed by the comforts that your position allows you to have. And you're no longer functioning as leaders. He's not calling for anarchy. He's calling for responsibility. And I think that being distracted from the things which are truly important is really one of the main issues that Christians who are on the wealthier side of things, it's one of the main things that we struggle with. Because to be honest, when was the last time that you had to get down on your knees and pray, oh God, I do not know where my next meal is coming from. Provide for me this day my daily bread because I have no plan. When's the last time you had to pray that way? I haven't had to pray that way ever. I always had a plan. Even when I was running around, you know, on my own, hitchhiking through Europe, I had, I had money in my pocket. I always had a plan. Any suffering that I have gone through is self-inflicted suffering. Some of it because God called me to it. Some of it because I was just stupid, but it was all self-inflicted, you know? When's the last time you really had to pray, oh God, I hope they don't kick in our doors while we're in the middle of worship and start dragging us all off to prison. Or God help protect me because I'm going to stand and be bold for you, but this society around me will like to take me out and either throw me in prison or kill me because of it. Some of you can honestly say, I've had to make those prayers. I never have. And I think most of us here probably never have. It's easy to be distracted when you have more than enough. It's easy to be distracted from the role that we have in the world to be witness when we're comfortable. And I think one of the reasons why God stresses us sometimes financially or emotionally is that stress reminds us of our need for God because it's easy for us to mouth a word of faith but not live in faith. Because our situation doesn't require us to be in a place of hands open, eyes up to heaven saying, I have no idea what I'm going to do in order to survive. Now, some of you may have, because we're an international church, and I'm always aware that we don't all have the same stories. But I also have been a part of this church for 12 years. I'm pretty aware that a lot of us have never had to pray that prayer, or we haven't for a very long time. So then what do we do? What do we do so we don't get distracted? Well, I think one of the ways we have to understand is how are we definitely in the haves instead of the have-nots? 
You know, it's easy to kind of look at finances and look at wealth and go, well, there's kind of this scale, right? What's rich in one country is middle class in another, which might even be poor in another yet. And so, you know, you can kind of go, ah, yeah, you know, there's this scale and I still have things to worry about. I've got stuff going on. But one way that we are definitely in the haves or the have-nots, and there's no middle class, is in the place of faith and salvation. Either you are in Christ or you're not. There's no middle class. You're either a direct inheritor of the kingdom of God and all that this means, which goes beyond our comprehension, or you're not. You're out and you're destined for an eternal existence in hell. One is being an inheritor, the prince and princesses of the universe. The other is out in a place of suffering and turmoil. And when it becomes this stark in our mind, when we understand how clearly it's not, there's not a middle class, you're either in or you're out, then we have to ask some questions, especially those of us who are, again, a little better off. How, what do we do with the wealth of knowing Christ? We have both the wealth of knowing him, spiritually rich, and many of us have the wealth of finances behind it. So what do we do? Do we share that wealth generously? And here I'm talking about spiritual. Are we willing to share what we have? Or do we find that we are complacent in doing that? Do we find that, well, it seems like kind of a hassle to do that. Do we share that? And what distracts us? From sharing it? Are we distracted by the politics that is often around faith? Or do we major on minor issues? Do we allow the values of society to become our values? When the values of society become the values of the church, then that just leads to fighting within the church because the church lays things out pretty clearly. We tend to fight when we want to bring in a different value. What do we do with this? Well, before his crucifixion, Jesus uttered a prayer for people like you and me. And if you go to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, he first prays for himself. Then he prays specifically for his disciples. And then he says this in verses 20 through 23. He says, my prayer is not for them being his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe me through their message. Believe in me through their message. That all of them might be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they, he's speaking about us now, future generations, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me. That's a lot of wealth, giving them the glory. Glory means to be revealed in a way that is positive. We reveal the character of God. As the body of Christ, as Christians, we are to reveal to the world what God's character is. By living out that character as Christians, little Christs. It says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity and let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. I think a good question we can ask ourselves individually and as a church and across all denominations who are in Christ, what distracts us from living out this prayer? What gets in the way? 
of living out the prayer of being a person through which the glory of God is made evident to the people around us. What gets in the way of us following him? And how can I keep this from happening? That I can be a healthy part of the people God wants us to be. We're not going to get into all those answers today. I think that's just kind of a place to be thinking about. Because we know, the scripture makes it clear, that we are to be a people that are generous, that reflect the character of Christ, his generosity, his compassion, his forgiveness, his willingness to stand up for in, against injustice. His willingness to even stand up against those who claim to be followers of God, who were strained from what that meant. And there's lots of different ways that we can do this. You know, there's going to be an event coming up, uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, in, the, in the announcements. You've probably heard about this, you know, the Festival of Hope. Is that what it's called? In Essen, you know, the Billy Graham Association is doing it. And I think those things are fine. I'm just going to tell you one reason why we haven't made, hyped it up a whole lot here. Is after 40 years of being a believer, I am much more concerned about how we live with, around the people that we influence in our lives than events. I think big events are great. But a big event means nothing if the people who are Christians don't live out that faith daily around the people that they're involved with. Otherwise, a big event is just kind of a big happy thing when we pat each other on the back and we praise Jesus and we go home. The Festival of Hope, I would encourage you, if you want to go, go take a friend who's not a believer, because it's not for believers. It's to try and bring non-believers. And yet the vast majority of the people, I'll tell you, who are going to be at this thing are already believers. It's how they always work. And it's not speaking badly against Franklin Graham or even Billy Graham. It's just the way it is. You know, these things have been studied up and down, left and right. It's a good tool. If you want to be part of it and invite a non-believing friend to go to it, go to it. If you want to go to it, be encouraged, go to it. But understand, it's going to be nothing if you don't live it. If you don't live it, live it, live it. If you do not do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, it doesn't mean anything. And really, I would say this is how I've chosen to live. And I think this is where Amos would call us to take a look at ourselves and say, how are we going to not be this complacent people? Well, we're not going to, it's going to take soul searching. It's not going to be an event that changes us. It's not going to be going to church that changes us. It's going to be whether or not we take in the Holy Spirit of God and allow him to root around into who we are, to question, to allow the Holy Spirit to look into our own values, to allow the Holy Spirit to look into the things that we have made idols, and to make the changes that are necessary in order for us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Not because in doing this, we're better people, but because in doing this, we reflect the character and the image of Jesus Christ as Christians in the world around us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and thank you for Amos. Amos is a tough character, but he's, it's good. And Lord, I think all of us sitting here, myself included, feel the challenge of, of Amos. And know that, you know, when we sing things like, I'm giving everything to Christ, or, you know, I surrender all, 
there's a part of us that knows that those words, uh, it's a good thing we're not held accountable to those 100% all the time. But Lord, I think sometimes they represent what we wish for, what we long to be, if we had the courage and faith to be that people that could surrender all, that can give all, that can trust all into your hands. And Lord, so we pray that we're thankful for grace that knows that we fall short. We're thankful for your justice that reminds us, yeah, you are short. But your grace covers that ground with your body and with your blood, which we celebrated today. But Lord, may we not become complacent in that either, complacent in you. But Father, may we be in that place of freedom, freed from fear because of what you've done for us, free to allow us to pursue what it means to be in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.